you know, it's a false dichotomy to say that you either do acute care or you do preventive health, but you should be absolutely clear about the benefit that uh, population and prevention health can bring at the most extraordinary value for money. You're listening to Pomegranate, podcast of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. I'm Mick Cavazzini. Today we're reflecting on the moral obligations of being a physician, a theme that was explored at Congress, the annual meeting of the RACP. And so within medicine we feel very passionate about certain interventions and of course great differences are made, but the real drivers of health and well-being are at a much more fundamental level. They relate to the distribution of wealth, power and resources and so they're complex and they require arms of government and all of society to work hand in glove. Dr Brett Sutton is Deputy Chief Health Officer of Victoria and has a background in emergency medicine and humanitarian work. He was one of the invited speakers at Congress in a session discussing the role of physician as advocate. I caught up with him and Professor Ross Upshaw, who opened the forum with a history of our changing ethical codes and also talks about the future of big data in targeting social remedies. Yeah, so I'm Ross Upshur. I'm a professor in the Dalalana School of Public Health and the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Ross, you, you talked about allocation of resources and how context is just as important as the evidence base in determining utility. What kind of contexts are you referring to there? Well, I'll give you an example from one of my students who came from a low-income country and was charged with setting up a mammography program. And, you know, all things considered, she was kind of worked up about this. She said, you know, I really don't think that what our country needs is mammography. We've got large parts of the country that don't have access to potable water. How do I go back to my ministry and say, with all due respect, minister, there are bigger fish to fry. So uh, this is going to be fast upon all high-income systems as well. We've got a, a, a revolution in genomics and precision medicine, and it's not going to be cheap. Uh, So if we believe that it's the right of every oncology patient to have their own humanized mouse avatar to get precision signaling of uh, precise treatment, I can only assure you that the inequities will grow. And I just want to differentiate inequity from inequality. And inequity is an inequality that is unjust, unfair, um, systematic and avoidable. You know, there's a moral judgment made about that it immediately brings in concepts such as social justice so when we're talking about inequities we are being quite deliberate in saying these are inequalities for which there is no biological reason for them to occur that they're not okay that's associate professor sue wolfenden of the unsw school of women and children's health she's a pediatrician in the sydney children's hospital network and participated in the closing discussion of congress on how doctors can set an example for tackling the social determinants of health So I think a lot of people understand that, you know, people who are really poor or really poor housing have poor health outcomes. I don't think that's a hard sell. I think most people see that. However, what they don't tend to understand is that people in between also have variable health. And if you really want to change a population's health, you need to understand the social gradient because there's a huge middle group that you want to try and improve as well. So often you'll get people debating universal versus targeted services. Actually, you need both. And the word that Michael Marmot used is proportionate universalism. What you actually have to do is make sure that the amount of services you provide is proportionate to the need. Can you illustrate perhaps the slide you showed that compared 
SES postcodes in Melbourne to the location of speech oh, yeah. pathology. So that, that uh, was kindly given to me by uh, Professor Sharon Goldfield, who uh, she runs an equity research group down at Murdoch Children's Research Institute, and she's done some work where she's um, looked at postcodes. Um, postcodes have a link to a socioeconomic status measure. It's quite rough, but ABS puts it out. And so uh, she looked at how advantaged or disadvantaged a neighbourhood was and then looked at the supply of speech pathologists, both private and public. And pretty much what it showed was that the majority of speech pathologists, and I'm sure if we did the same thing for private paediatricians, were actually based um, in the areas that had the most advantage as a neighbourhood and that the more disadvantaged the neighbourhoods were, the less access there were to services. And that makes sense because often those areas are more regional, they're more out of metropolitan. Um, I don't think that's a surprise to any of the college membership. I think they know now there's less services available generally. So is the onus on practice managers or health workers themselves to go into those less lucrative suburbs or do the incentives need to come from the health system? Oh, man, that's a hard one. I, I, I don't know if I can answer that. I think the onus is on all of us to look at our health services that we provide and how do we make them more accessible. I think there's definitely an onus on us in working in partnership and thinking more about outreach of our hospital-based services. I think we need to make better use of big data. We're in the era yeah. of big data, and it, me- it means we need to trawl that for as much analysis as it can provide, and we need the appropriate local-level feedback. You know, in Australia, maybe it's the primary healthcare network, maybe it's the local government area, but some some version of that to say these are our local issues. Once you identify them, you've already got the motivation to do something about them, and you've provided half the tools to do so because um, they know where to place the focus and within the resources that are available they uh, prioritize accordingly. So I started as a rural physician and I used to tell my residents if you want to go and be a rural physician you can negotiate a bronze statue of yourself in front of city hall and they will do that to get you to come up and work but even areas in Toronto are considered underserviced right and I think we have an obligation to on grounds of equity or justice or whatever you like to redistribute and if we need to incentivize to do that do that the government has a further kind of uh, lever. They've put a lock on the number of new family health teams that can be introduced. They're using it to say, okay, if you want new grads to work in these teams, they've got to locate here. But, you know, it's not just about the provision of health services. You need to look at whatever else is required in those spaces. It might be um, opioid substitution therapy. It might be needle and syringe exchanges, etc., in order in order to match it with the prevalence of illness as you see it. So, you know, some will be hotspots for hep C, some will be hotspots for hypertension, and yep. you just need to match. And, and I think practices, they need to understand all of those dimensions that relate to, uh, you know, pure distance, but also appropriateness and affordability. And so that is somewhere that... Uh, physicians themselves should be driving rather than waiting for for government to real, yeah, realise yeah. there's a gap. But I think it needs to be built from the bottom up. So you need to understand what the concerns are of the community you're trying to serve and you have to understand the barriers that they experience individually and, and as a community.
And I'd say the community should be driving it and the physician should be uh, listening and exactly. leading. And what we need to think about is from, I like to talk about, from preconception to bereavement is how we envision the population. So it's not just over when the patient dies because there's their survivors and we have to provide appropriate care. And good health of a child starts in the preconception. It's very intergenerational, not surprisingly. It all begins before birth. So one of the things we know is that the more disadvantaged you are, the less likely you are to access antenatal care visits. Usually you want to have at least five visits because in antenatal care, it's when there are discussions about nutrition and immunisations and being safe. And there's also some data out there that's shown how the less antenatal care visits you have, the more likely you are to have a low birth weight baby. Um, if you're born low birth weight or preterm, that can have impacts on your development all the way up into adulthood. So definitely there's an example where we could improve things to make sure the way we're providing services doesn't become a social determinant in itself. And I think often people get to that argument where they say, well, they didn't come, and then they get the word did not attend written on their file. And rather than I think the question is, well, okay, why didn't they come? What is it about the way we provide our service that makes it not a service that people who are at risk come to? Now, you've published some research about the awareness of and experience of early years care among disadvantaged and culturally diverse groups in Sydney. Um, What did you find out about that? You know, you should always do research in an area that makes you cross. And um, I was getting cross because I was having children age four who were turning up to my developmental clinic with clear features of autism spectrum disorder. Um, and the first time they were turning up was four, and I was going, well, how? You know, and it wasn't like these kids were children that people would miss the disability. And it's very easy, again, there for you to blame the parents and go, oh, the parents were in denial or whatever. And I thought, well, let's ask. Let's, let's just find out what is going on from parents, from culturally linguistically diverse backgrounds, and healthcare providers and non government organisations who run playgroups. And it was interesting because um, the providers, again, we got a lot of stories about stigma, um, there's a lack of awareness in the community, people just don't know where to go. Even if you did find a problem, and often there were speech problems, people couldn't afford to go to private speech pathologists, they're waiting lists, it's hard to get into a GP, we don't all work together, we're not trained in this, all those kind of things. And then from the parents, we were kind of getting the story, yes, of a lack of community awareness, a lack of awareness themselves, it was their first child often. But also we were getting a story of I was worried and I either didn't know where to go or I was worried and I kept saying I was worried and everyone said, he's fine. It's because English is a second language. And really the rules are always the same. You have to have two-word combinations at two. You know, that that's the rule. Regardless of what language you speak, it's two-word combinations at two. Usually at preschool someone or daycare, someone was saying this isn't okay, but you can remember a lot of these kids don't actually make it to daycare or preschool because it's actually not affordable. Well, you've not waited for the system to change to make it easy for you. Can you describe your initiative in attracting disadvantaged young mothers to yeah. development surveillance programs? Actually, we, we didn't push it forward. The playgroups did. The playgroups then went, what, we need to do something now to train the child and family workers in the playgroups in how to undertake developmental surveillance because we knew these families weren't going to child and family health nurses and then gave them a referral pathway to link them to our child development clinic. 
Um, and that did mean we detected quite a few more children with difficulties and so we managed to get some money to get a speech pathologist who would also go to the playgroups and rather than her doing one-on-one with every child which was just going to be beyond the resources looking at helping the playgroups support language as well. So we've done some education with the parents in the playgroups about what's normal, when to be concerned, what the blue book is and then we've trained the playgroup leaders in sort of okay this is how you ask the questions around child development and this is where you can refer them if you have a concern. I mean the ideal model is hubs and one-stop shops so for example for our um, Aboriginal clients in the La Perouse area we don't expect them to come to our outpatients at the hospital because there's issues with trust. La Par is seen as their place. Um, We run a clinic out there that essentially runs the same way as a general developmental clinic will run Um, But the difference is we have often caseworkers from Bernardo's floating around who we can engage to help families who are struggling. We have a social worker now. We can link them up with who's there. Uh, We have speech pathologists. We have a preschool next door. We have a parenting group next door. Well, and I guess it's just yet another example of if people aren't coming to you, thinking about how you can go to them. Um, In that closing session at Congress, Peter Connaughton gave a lovely example of the work of the Sini Institute in Bengal um, to empower women in communities to tend to the public health needs of the village. And he said that empowerment doesn't mean showing people how it's done. Mm. It it requires giving up some of your own authority. Mm. Is this a message that can be applied even by the inner city physician? Yeah, I do. I think um, so in, in community where I am, we work in a family partnership model where we acknowledge our expertise, but equally we acknowledge the expertise of the parents um, because no one knows their child better than them. But also the other person that you must consider, and I think you can start talking to them fairly early on, is children themselves. They're the experts in their health that I talk to first. And then I think you just, you know, I guess the message I was trying to get over is that there are many opportunities in a child's life course between being a, a blip in their mother's womb all the way to being an adolescent where even if they have risk factors pushing them down, such as poverty or their mother's isolation or not doing very well in school, that the health service has an opportunity to act as a buffer. And children will have buffers too. Children, their innate temperament might be a buffer. They might have a grandmother who really cares about them that's a buffer. They might have a family that's not particularly wealthy but reads to them and that's a buffer. So I think um, too often we think only in terms of risk and what we instead we need to think about are what for each child what are the risk factors in their lives and what are the protective factors in their lives and how can we make sure how we provide health services is a protective factor as well. It's estimated that socioeconomic factors are responsible for half of a population's health and well-being status. By comparison, all the medical services provided might determine only a quarter of health outcomes. Better targeting of limited resources is crucial to addressing this, but it's not just a macro-level problem, according to Ross Upshaw. He says that merging medical records with socioeconomic markers will help physicians address inequity at every consultation. So we incentivize practitioners in Ontario to do preventive manoeuvres like flu shots, uh, you know, basic vaccinations, colorectal cancer, pap smears, and mammography. But we don't report on equity. So you could say, I'm doing a good job. I've gone from 60 to 80 percent coverage. But if you don't look at that according to SES, uh, you know, recent immigration, poverty status, blah, blah, blah. And oh, my God, all that 20 percent that I've missed are all low socioeconomic. If you ask the right question 
and you're cute to ask the right question as a matter of course. So like I said, if you know their postal code, if you ask about income adequacy, isolation. Michael Marmot was talking about isolation kills. So I'm trying to develop a tool right now that permits general practitioners and family docs to identify uh, the frail, isolated individuals. So we need to have a, some investment in research that allows us to figure out how we can make all of this default practice just like it is now when you come in, here's your weight, here's your this, here's your that, here's your presenting complaint. So we need to change the way that information is shown to clinicians so that the social determinants are present to the mind of the clinician when they're seeing that patient. We call that the bifocal vision. So I want population health or public health to look one level down and clinicians to look one level up. And in that intermediate space is a shared common goal of improving population health. And then the final cherry on top is addressing equity. I like big data generally is from a scientific background, but we're talking about, in a way, academic understanding of these problems as opposed to what the doctor can do themselves. So David Beaumont today gave the example of the unemployed patient who comes along with hypertension and his doctors say, well, I can treat the hypertension, but what can I do about the unemployment? So at a practical level, how can doctors plug in better to social services where they are provided and should they be standing up and shouting to, to government where they're not provided? Mm. So you have to say being unemployed is like saying, and I'm also drinking, you know, 26 ounces of whiskey a day. You have to see it as actionable towards health. And then you need the tools. So what's the first thing that comes to mind? You know, are you getting benefits? Uh, do you know what benefits you're entitled to? Have you spoken with an, a vocational counselor? I'm going to send you to these people. I want to see you back in two weeks to see if we're making any progress, right? Uh, we actually have now a software that has all of the government benefits for income support and security. And we can write, just like you would refer to a chiropodist for a diabetic foot, or, uh, you know, you need a cath, you send them to a cardiologist. We need to see these as practice-level interventions that benefit the health of the patient. What's being referred to as social prescriptions. Yeah. yeah. We want uh, social precision medicine. Yeah, And I think big data shouldn't be in the realm of academics alone, it needs to be utilised at that service level. You know, again, in Australia, we're working with public health networks now to try and help map out all of the notifiable diseases, the infectious diseases, uh, according to burden by public health network, and then they can focus on those uh, diseases that are particularly high burden in their areas. You know, now in Victoria, we're getting better vaccination coverage for some of our Aboriginal Victorians than for the non-Indigenous population. So you can get there. That's a great example of collecting the data and feeding it back to where it's needed. Yeah. But what about the, the physician who's counselling their patients? They'll, t they'll tell you, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a social worker, I've not been trained and I don't have, I've got 10 minutes to, to write these social prescriptions. Yeah. Is, is oh. that the, the, the time and the training isn't available or the, the value of those interventions isn't fully recognised yet? I, th I think it's both. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the the selling point is that you can't afford not to. Yeah. The people that you will see recurrently, the people that you'll see with escalating health issues and hospitalisation, you know, many of these things are preventable through more basic, earlier, focused interventions. And, you know, you can... Um, it's not 
stealing from Peter to pay Paul, you will you will save yourself in the long run. But it needs to be understood in terms of how all of those causal pathways line up. Yeah, and we do truly need to work towards a fully integrated health and social services system. What we have is a lot of uncoordinated services. So, you know, one, we have to really think hard about how we unburden the time burden on clinicians. That's another thing I'm very worried about. And that's a human-created problem, right? We've created this, we can uncreate it. So we know that not every rank-and-file practicing physician is going to want to be a data hound. So if you don't have the time, we create a cadre of people who can do it. And I'm just going to say, as much as I love epidemiologists that can't be epidemiologists, it's got to be somebody with a clinical sensibility. If they have a group of people who take public health and preventive medicine, they understand data and its use for policy and planning. They work with family physicians. So they would say, okay, you got an EMR. I know how to mine your clinical data in your EMR. Eventually, it's all going to have to be aggregated and sent to the province anyways. We need to get it remunerated. So I think there's a, you know, if, if we're successful in the next decade, we'll affect this revolution. All this is possible with political will. We actually know what the issues are. We just have to organize ourselves and marshal the will. And I can tell you after four years, it's hard work because my clinician peers say, I see one patient at a time. And my public health peers say, well, I'm up here doing intersectoral work. I don't deal with patients. I say, Come on, guys, let's get together here and maybe we can make something really cool happen. A common theme to emerge from these discussions at Congress was the esteem and influence doctors have in advocating for patients and communities. It's not always easy, however, for physicians to put themselves in the firing line over divisive ethical issues. So it's, it's interesting. So in Canada, they've created this CanMeds framework, which takes eight qualities and characteristics where physicians need competency. So medical expert, manager, collaborator, and advocate is one of them. And interestingly, it's the one when you're doing work with specialist physicians or primary care physicians that they feel the least comfortable with. And so it does take a little courage to be an advocate. You have to be prepared for a massive amount of pushback. In your session, Brett, you said that doctors carry a level of respect in society that means that they do tend to get listened to if they speak out. But it's also a fine line about maintaining credibility. Yeah, look, I think it's very true. They, they have a privileged position. They should reflect on that in terms of the um, privileged position, really, that to be able to move some of those levers of policymaking and of political interest. Um, but they do need to um, maintain the respect within which they're held. And, you know, that sometimes means meeting policymakers, meeting politicians in the right space, um, not going in necessarily with a radical agenda at a time. You need to wait for those hooks. Sometimes they're about individual case stories. Um, sometimes they're about you know, very prominent news items that become your entry point for a policy change. So again, I can't speak for all doctors. I can only speak for my experience. Um, yeah, I think responsibility does weigh heavily and I have certainly struggled with my ambivalence about that level of responsibility and and sometimes feeling like I'm letting people down because I can't possibly fulfil that level of responsibility. Having said that, we see directly the impact of the social determinants of health every day. So I think we are in the right spot to advocate and the, the level of respect that we're held into and, and use that. 
I guess you have to think about how can you be the most effective advocate. I'm certainly, I think you will lose vast waves of the population and their support if you show your political colours too much. Um, you can get a bit strident and you you kind of, when you're so passionate about children's rights, I think you can then imply that other people aren't and then put them offside. And you have to think about what, what matters to different people and what values do they have. So I think the moral argument for managing inequality works for some people. It doesn't work for everyone. Some people do see the world has always been unfair and that's just the way the world is. I think for those people you probably need to have an argument about how expensive inequalities are, you know, through the loss of sort of the human capability but also the effect on things like crime and productivity in society. That That is an argument in itself in terms of the money we would save if we addressed inequalities. Gillian uh, Triggs referred to the 2016 case of Baby Asher an infant from Nepal who was burnt at the Nauru detention camp and her treating physicians at Lady Silento Hospital in Brisbane refused to discharge her for fear she'd be sent back to a damaging environment. The reaction of the media and politicians was mixed. You could argue that the doctor's action was in the interests of the patient's health alone, but others would say that it was overstepping into a more political statement. Uh, In the end, we have undertaken the Hippocratic Oath which is to first do no harm and secondly, you know, to help mankind. So it's pretty simple, really, in the sense that you you treat your patient, you make sure that they are, are well, and when they're ready for discharge, you make sure they can go to a setting where they can get good outpatient care and nothing is going to contribute to difficulties with follow-up. Um, that's our job. Um, people can argue the point, but I think if you feel a personal ethical imperative... You'll, you'll push against whatever. And I think the, um, the point to reflect on is, is it going to damage their clinical relationship and their clinical standing within the hospital going forward? Uh, and, and that's a worthy consideration because our professional lives are, you know, uh, how we do good in the world. And so you don't want that to come to a crashing halt. By the same token, you know, the things that you stand for define your character. And so there's always the tension. And, you know, we're in an era where nanny statism has become a terrible thing. And yet we forget how we've internalised putting on a seatbelt as our obligation to everyone's health, uh, even though, you know, 4,000 people need to wear a seatbelt to prevent one significant injury. So um, there are cultural elements about what we accept or don't accept as constraints on our individual freedoms. And so part of it's the pitch and part of it's the those slow cultural shifts with repeated messaging and the evidence and data behind them. For population-level interventions, we're talking about invisible gains and to try and have people emotionally engage with saving theoretical lives is a harder task. But, you know, we've done it with smoking, uh, we've done it in uh, road safety in Australia so successfully and we can do it for other things, I'm sure. Just to pick up on, on, on what Brett was saying and support it, for me it's a, a matter of the clarity and reasoning and your justification. And when you're advocating, you need your argument to be as lock solid as possible. And I think when physicians are working from their value base, that they're there for the you know goals of medicine, which is to improve people's health, and there's not anywhere where you can sort of 
pry underneath that and find an ulterior motive, right? So if anybody can impugn and suggest, oh, well, you're not speaking as a doctor. You're really your just, hidden agenda. Your hidden agendas for the auto industry and seatbelt manufacturers, right? You know, which came up during the seatbelt debate. So if the motives are good, the reasoning is clear, the evidence is as good as it can get, then you're in a pretty good place uh, for advocacy. Um, Ross, a point that you made in your lecture that that ethics isn't taught to medical students in an effective way anymore, that it's been replaced by a concept of professionalism rather than ethics. How is this different? Why is this a problem? Well, I think it relates to the self-understanding of physicians. Uh, I think they're much more comfortable with this language of professionalism than they are with ethics. Well, a profession by definition is self-regulating, which means that the standards of where we embody and live our obligations to communities and to our patients is done by us. The one reason I think it's important to maintain ethics outside of professionalism is because you cannot resolve uh, certain issues that I think uh, lean towards public health ethics and other macro-level things like resource allocation through mechanisms of professionalism alone. And I agree that ethics is a much broader church in that regard. And I think the other point about professionalism is it's also defined by the norms, historical and cultural and, and personal norms of the individuals that make up the profession. And so sometimes ethical behaviour needs to push against those boundaries. Um, you, you, know, you can take gender norms within sometimes very conservative colleges and they might regard those individuals who challenge those norms as unprofessional Uh, whereas in fact they're following an ethical imperative to seek gender equity or appropriate gender representation within that professional body. And so I think it's important to recognise that some components of professionalism also relate to the baggage and inertia of history. That was Brett Sutton ending this episode of Pomegranate. Thanks also to Ross Upshaw and Sue Wolfenden for their contributions. The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Today's guests appeared at RACP Congress alongside other eminent speakers such as Sir Michael Marmot, Associate Professor Peter Sainsbury and Emeritus Professor Gillian Triggs. You can see these sessions in full at the College's YouTube channel, RACP 1938. To find other resources mentioned in this podcast or claim CPD credits, visit the Pomegranate website and send any feedback to the address pomcast at racp.edu.au. Please share the story with colleagues and join the conversation online using the hashtag RACPpod. I'm Mick Cavazzini, and I hope you can join me again next month.